On Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. This week, we speak with Professor Utku Babalan of Amherst College about the connection between industrialization and what some call Islamic revivalism in Turkey. Professor Utku Babalan argues that focused on the Islamist secularist rift in the examination of the history of modern Turkey overemphasizes the cultural and political causes of tensions between the secularist and the Islamist and overlooks the connection between what some call Islamic revivalism and the industrialization of the Muslim-majority countries, especially after the 1970s. Professor Babylon brings class actors and industrial dynamics into the center of his analysis and argues that a key factor behind the Islamist decade-long electoral success in Turkey is their alliance with the new middle class, which consists of a small construction contractors, slumlords, shopkeepers, and small industrialists in working-class communities. He says the support of these small industrialists in poor urban neighborhoods has been critical for the Islamists to muster the support of the working class. Utku Babalan is the visiting associate professor of sociology at Amherst College, and he spoke with Vomina's Shahram Aghamir. Shahram began by asking Professor Babalan to answer one of the central questions that he poses in his own work, which is, why have Islamist movements become more successful in industrializing countries? This question is about the impact of industrial development on what some call Islamic revivalism. In other words, the surprising rise of the emergence of Islamist movements after the 1970s. If you see a major power shift in politics, there should be new groups playing an increasingly important role in production relations. If you don't see in the middle of a major political shift that kind of an agency, that kind of an actor, I believe you should take another look until you find or define those groups. And this is exactly what I'm trying to do. What has changed in the Middle East and North Africa in particular, and in the Muslim majority world in general since the 1970s, was somewhat related to the emergence of such groups or their absence. Lots of things changed since the 1970s. Borders changed, governments fell, countries were decimated, again, in the Muslim majority world, and particularly, of course, in the Middle East and North Africa. When I think about all these changes, this kind of political instability must have created a fertile ground for new political movements, which could be strong enough to overthrow their national political establishments. However, Islamists were surprisingly unsuccessful in most parts of this meta region, in other words, the Muslim majority world. This, I believe, because all this political turmoil did not change that much in the production relations of most of these countries. Industrializing countries, however, such as Turkey and Indonesia, witnessed a different development after the 1980s. New economic interests emerged with the industrialization that no longer aimed to develop a domestic market, but to export manufactured goods to richer countries. Many in the literature cause this phenomenon export-led industrialization. In other words, the short answer is that export-led industrialization changed the production relations in a small number of Muslim-majority countries and thereby gave rise to new economic interests. 
In other Muslim-majority countries, this was not the case. Islamists had to find an ally who would be willing to challenge the political establishment. They would find that ally in near economic relations. And here's a caveat. Islamist movements are old. Some of them are older than a century, such as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Political movements in some countries, such as in Turkey, are also now older than half a century. The history of social and political movements are, of course, important, but this should not prevent us from seeing the ruptures in the same history of the Islamist movements. For instance, France still has a communist party, but this party has only minimal resemblance to what it was, let's say, 50 years ago. The same idea applies to the Islamists as well. This, I believe, is a simple but still important point because there is a strong tendency to overemphasize the continuity in Islamist movements. Islamist movements of the past were unable to muster popular support in their own constituency. Circumstances changed. Islamists, especially in countries which changed significantly due to globalization, found and sometimes used the opportunity to ally with new economic interests. However, in the same process, they changed too. Thus, I tend to see contemporary Islamist movements as what some call new social movements, rather than the inheritor of a two-century-long tradition. You write that Turkish Islamism has arguably outperformed many other Islamist movements. This transformation was related, as you write, to the rise of small industrialists. You argue that the Islamists in Turkey could not have come to power without an alliance with these small industrialists who own over 400,000 such small facilities that employ over 4 million workers. During your field work between 2002 and 2015, which included, as I understand, working in one of these units for a year, you determined that ideal typical small industrialist is a garment sweatshop owner in a thickly settled working class neighborhood of Istanbul. Can you describe these sweatshops, their owners, and how they operate? Let me start with some background information about my own uh, research experience. In 2008, I worked at actually four different garment facilities in the largest working class region of Turkey, which is located in the European part of Istanbul. I worked at these facilities as an unskilled worker, and I was basically assisting sewing machine operators. I just helped them to fold the fabric and then make the initial quality control etc etc so that just gave me a precious opportunity to talk with all these workers not only in their neighborhoods but also they say talk to them that's while they were working for many hours each one of these facilities was different in terms of their size owner's background their position in the larger supply chains also between 2011 and 2015 i conducted in-depth interviews with over 150 such employers in three industrializing cities in turkey namely in is the Gaziantep and Kayseri. Based on this experience, as well as some support from this relatively spare statistical data available, I will say most of these sweatshops and small factory owners came to Istanbul and other industrialized cities of the country from provincial regions in the late 1970s or in the early 1980s. A predominant majority of the owners of these establishments started their businesses after they just worked as such facilities as workers. In other words, most of these entrepreneurs, who are almost unexceptional men, are self-made men. 
if you will. This particular this background establishes a special relationship between this employers, this uh, small industrialists and their workers. This is, I think, an important point to emphasize. Another point to underline is that these entrepreneurs do not earn astronomical revenues. To my estimates, the monthly income of a sweatshop owner in the garment industry in Turkey is roughly $3,000 a month, which means in many cases, the respective figure is much smaller. In other words, we are talking about bosses here, entrepreneurs or employers here, but not capitalists, if you will. Another key point is about the average life of these enterprises. Again, according to my calculations, based on the average duration of membership in export associations, the average life of companies in the garment industry could be as short as four years. The metaphor I use to visualize the quote-unquote the business ecology of the labor-intensive industries in Turkey is bubbles in a soda can. Like those bubbles, these enterprises keep growing until they pop when they reach the surface. In other words, we just have a lively business ecology, again, quote-unquote. However, we do not see this aesthetic, stable group of you know, enterprises in these you know, labor-intensive industries. The organization of work is the last point which I would like to emphasize. It's highly disorganized. Most of the sweatshops work with small orders, which they complete in a time frame of a few months, if not a few weeks, or even a few days. As the pay level is low, the volatility in recruitment and employment is high. In other words, they hardly employ workers over a couple of years. This has a significant emotional, physiological, and cognitive pressure on workers. In general, though, these establishments operate according to the whims of the actors in the upper levels of the global commodity chains. The uncertainty in this relationship between the sweatshops and their customers in this global supply chains leads to extremely inhumane work and employment conditions, as well as low productivity levels. However, low productivity is not a major problem for sweatshop owners, as well as their customers, because the pay is low and the workday is extremely long. The reason, Sharon, why I shared all these details with you is to portray a realistic picture about the political motivations of the sweatshop owners in national politics. First of all, they are individually weak. With the kind of revenue they earn, they can play only a minor role in politics and only at the local level. However, politics is important for their businesses. Stricter enforcement of the labor code, new environmental regulations, or the cutback of certain subsidies for exporting small establishments could kill their business overnight. They are weak as individual entrepreneurs, but they are collectively strong for two reasons. First, they are collectively the biggest manufacturing employer in the country. In other words, they are the ones who bring the foreign currency to the country, and maybe more importantly, spend a significant portion of that foreign currency to pay the wages of their workers. Second, because many of them come from a similar background, as I mentioned, as their workers, and in some cases, they live in the same neighborhoods as their workers, they can have substantial influence on the political opinions of their workers. In short, the small industrialists operate according to certain capacities and constraints. They must make sure that the current government needs them a strong allies in working class communities. Later on in our conversation, we'll talk about 
your characterization of these sweatshop owners. But for now, you write that until the 1980s, Islamism was a mostly marginal political movement in Turkey, but the 1980 military coup was a turning point. The military junta of 1980 through 1983 dismantled Cold War policies of developmentalism, which had facilitated the kind of uh, industrialization that substituted imports with domestically produced goods, as was the case in many countries in the world at the time. The rise of small industrialist and Islamic revivalism in Turkey coincided with this shift away from import substitution to an export-led industrialization strategy. The 1980s witnessed a boom in the number of small manufacturing facilities Can you talk about this period, the significance of this shift and its consequences? The entire character of production relations changed in Turkey in the 1980s. Before the 1980s, if you would like to be a part of the ruling elite, you should have been either a professional, a bureaucrat, or a factor owner, basically. In each one of these cases, the government was directly involved in the nature of your professional business. You will sell your service or product to the domestic market or to the government itself. However, things changed significantly with the 1980s, and I think we could just focus on three, let's say, broadly defined social groups to understand the nature of this shift. First of all, for the political establishment, the earlier developmentalist system based on, again, import substitution, worked pretty successfully from the early 1960s to the late 1970s. In fact, the very success of the system also magnified the scope of its crisis in the late 1970s. Thus, the developmentalist political establishment, composed of the bureaucrats, basically, and politicians, was eager to take radical steps to transform the economy even before the 1980 military coup d'etat. And the military junta basically facilitated the transformation that already had started before the coup itself. In fact, this is a classical digging your own grave story. This was a response to the uh, global crisis uh, in in capital accumulation throughout the world. Exactly. So like, you know, if you just focus on, again, let's say on the Muslim majority world, basically each one of these, let's say, uh, post-colonial nation states gave different responses. And of course, you know, this is a complex, you know, let's say story, but I'd say one of the the factors that framed uh, the response of the older developmental political establishment to this global crisis was basically the level of success, if you will, of that model itself. The more successful you were between, let's say, 1950s and 1980s, the more radical steps, you know, you had to take uh, in order to just put you know, the economy back on its feet. If they said the growth level was you know, like smaller, if they say the rule to urban migration rate you know, like, was, you know, they say, sort of limited, basically the political establishment was not much willing to take radical reforms. Let's take you know, Egypt as an example. What I see, you know, like based on my limited knowledge on, on this country's recent history, was that, you know, they said the reforms were not as extensive as what we saw in Turkey. 
And I just call this basically incomplete neoliberalization. Some form of neoliberalization took place in most of the Muslim majority countries, that's true, but they were not as extensive as what we saw at least in Turkey and to some extent, for instance, in Indonesia. And then once you know, like the political establishment pushed uh, the first domino tile, the rest became a, some sort of political crisis for them. The government could no longer control who was to produce what. This is the first district group. The other group which we need to just take a look at is the older industrialists. Uh, some used to call them, I still use the same term, the comprador bourgeoisie, if you will. They just could not and did not want to compete with the emerging small manufacturing facilities, which employed recent rural to urban migrants for much lower wages than at their factories. In fact, in Turkey, roughly half of the employees work for minimum wage. So this is not the new standard. The respective values are much lower in most European countries and the United States. Thus, older industrialists slowly moved away from labor-intensive industries and shifted their businesses to large-scale industries that provided the basic inputs, such as energy, to the smaller industries. They also used the sweatshops as their subsidiaries for simpler and labor-intensive inputs. The way I see it, this is the second important transformation that sort of characterized this shift from 1980s on. For instance, the biggest business groups in Turkey, such as Koch or Sabancı, basically sold so many enterprises they used to own you know, until the 1980s to this new, let's say, growing families who just started their businesses as small sweatshop owners, etc. At the same time, they also used the privatization of the state enterprises to their benefit. In a sense, they just adopted a new role in the Turkish economy. Maybe another interesting piece of fact is that they said the largest industrial establishments in Turkey, for instance, the largest 100 or 500 establishments, have a much lower export volume with respect to their, let's say, total sales than, they say, all the sweatshops. In a sense, ironically speaking, this is a big business families now just basically both outsourcing like certain services and let's say production lines to their subsidies. At the same time, they also become the suppliers of the small, let's say, producers. So then a new, let's say, business environment came into existence and a new type of relationship was established between, let's say, the big industrial, let's say, business and the small ones. But there is also a third dimension to this question, Shaira, which is about the workers, of course, but we call the labor market segmentation between those who have secure and sometimes unionized jobs and others who just do not enjoy this quote-unquote perks became a structural component of the work and employment relations in Turkey. Those who do not find a place in the relatively privileged segments in the working class actually lost their hopes for upper social mobility for themselves and their children. This resulted in some sort of a pessimism, which was a factor that empowered the Islamists who offered the paradise to its workers after this meaningless life. The gap between the working class and between the working class and the pretty bourgeoisie then gained a political character, which basically the Islamists later capitalized on. This segmentation of work the 1980s, we witnessed quite a bit of it globally. Late 70s, 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Absolutely. 
inciting the factors that empowered the small industrialists and facilitated the conditions for a long-lasting alliance with the Islamists, you list the absence of foreign direct investment, an exceptionally high rural to urban migration in the 1980s, and the military junta's nearly total eradication of the political power of left-wing labor unions and socialist movements, which had dominated the urban and industrial landscape. And this is an important factor. What can you tell us about how these factors strengthened the position of the small industrialist and its alliance with the Islamist? I don't think I say anything substantially new about the impact of the rural to urban migration and the military coup on the political landscape of the country. But I believe the emphasis on the absence of foreign direct investment could be somewhat it is novel. I believe many who studied the development of the post-colonial low and middle-income countries missed the significance of the relationship between the extra volume and the volume of foreign direct investment. In many cases, of course, they overlap. Countries uh, receive foreign investment and grow their exports. But in some others, as in Turkey, and also, again, interestingly, as in Indonesia, this was not the case. Turkey's export volume grew at a substantial rate after the 1980s. In fact, much faster than many other developing countries, but this happened with small foreign investment. This means that certain groups in Turkey began to take a share from the growing pie. And more importantly, they had now a say about the nature of production and employment relations. And so, of course, it happens to be, again, the small industries. In other words, the basic formula here is that if a country grows its exports without substantial foreign investment, we should look for the beneficiaries of this process who would eventually have some sort of an impact on domestic policies. The opposite of this idea also, I think, obtains. If a country grows its exports, but especially with the substantial, let's say, inflow of foreign direct investment, we do not see the emergence of these new beneficiaries. Basically, people just follow the orders of these big companies. But let me also say a few things about rural to urban migration and the impact of the military coup in 1980. Turkey's highest rates of urbanization took place in the 1980s. That's an important fact, even though it may not be something new to you or to our audience. Turkey's current population is roughly 80 million people. And between 1980 and 2000, when the Islamists made their first significant appearance in nation politics, roughly 20 million people migrated from villages and small towns to cities like Istanbul. One fourth of the country changed, you know, let's say, their location of residence. This figure also, this 20 million, was twice as much as the migration in two previous decades between 1960 and 1980. Turkey's late industrial transformation could not have taken this particular form without this wave of rule to urban migration. And military, when we come to the effect of the military coup, there are simple facts. For instance, all of the unions were closed after the coup in 1980, as well as progressive associations for different occupational groups, such as primary and high school teachers. The property of these organizations were confiscated. The scope of the purge was extreme. I'd say almost all of the left-oriented families in Turkey 
have at least one family member who was either jailed or tortured or both after the coup. The intimidation was and still is extraordinary. On the top of that, most of these new rural to urban migrants were uninformed of the conditions of the politics before the 1980s. The social, economic, and cultural ties between progressive people and the working class were simply cut as a result of the military coup. We should also mention, perhaps, that this pattern of migration, rural to urban migration in the 1980s, was driven to a large extent by a cut in the agricultural subsidies and the war in the Kurdish region and uprooting of the Kurdish population by the military. Absolutely, Shairam. So that's actually what I meant by incomplete or complete neoliberalization. In most of the cases, the developmentalist elites in Muslim-majority countries basically were relatively shy about passing radical reforms that would, as you put it, uproot people who just basically lived in rural areas because they just were aware that this kind of transformation and the eventual, let's say, rule to urban migration to the cities could destabilize the political environment. But Turkey already passed that threshold. Basically, the economy was really big. In a sense, you, know, you cannot basically just reverse the industrial development at that point. You could only just move forward. These reforms that took place around the year of 1980 basically were not just limited to the privatization of state enterprises or the abolishment or cancellation of these export restrictions. It also entailed, as you just mentioned, the stabilization of the agricultural sector in the country. I am not sure to what extent the political establishment at that moment developed a good plan about the impact of following this rule to urban migration and its political consequences. However, it definitely had a major impact. And this is closely related, as you pointed out, to the Kurdish issue in Turkey. This mostly happened, by the way, you know, like in the late 1980s and in the early 1990s. According to some, more than 1.5 million people basically had to live there in villages and towns in Turkish Kurdistan. And basically, this just boosted quote-unquote, the labor supply for sweatshops. But let's not make a mistake. Let's not just come up with some sort of a picture of urban working class in these industries. Of course, I mean, the Kurds are overrepresented in Turkey's working class in these establishments. But nonetheless, the non-Kurd workers also make up a significant portion of the working class. The reason why I am emphasizing this is that there's a division between the working class also indirectly benefit the Islamists who use their, they say, uh, religious rhetoric to establish the basis of some sort of a social cohesion of these workers coming from different ethnic backgrounds. That's Professor Utku Babalan speaking with Shahram Agamir about the connection between industrialization and Islamic revivalism in Turkey. You can read his latest article titled Manufacturing the AKP in Turkey online at Middle East Research and Information Project Journal, merip.org. We'll hear more of that conversation after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. (laughs) 
But cool. moving on to 1990s, you write that the increase in small industrial production continued in this decade. In 1997, more than one third of Turkey's exports were textile and ready-made apparel products. And this is important to highlight. Small industrialists in these sectors were now collectively the biggest exporter and employer in the country. A remarkable position to be in. The economic crisis in 2001, and this was not limited to Turkey, as we know, it actually devalued the Turkish currency drastically and boosted exports by small industrialists. It is around this time that some Islamist politicians, such as Mr. Erdogan, decided that if Islamists were to come to power nationally, they would need to solidify their alliance with the small industrialists. A keen observation on their part. Can you explain how this alliance was mutually beneficial to both the Islamists and this class of small industrialists? Islamists benefited from this alliance with this new group of entrepreneurs and small industrialists by using them as their local allies in working class communities. This is the first part of the formula. And the second part of the formula is about small industries. They just weren't looking for an ally in national politics. The Islamists basically just provided that opportunity for them. So what do we mean by Islamists looking for a local ally in working class communities? Let me just you know, tell you a brief, let's say, uh, story. In the second part of my childhood, when I was an early teenager, we just basically moved to a working class neighborhood like the one I studied for the last 10, 15 years. As a matter of fact, that neighborhood was just located just next to the one I, I studied. They were just basically in the same region of the, of the city. You know, when we were kids, we were playing soccer with our plastic ball on this narrow street. It's not a good place you know, like, you know, to just play games. <laughs> of course yeah, but not, like, yes. We just were having fun. And one day, even though my family members also lived in that area, even though we used to go to that place beforehand, used to live in a lower middle class neighborhood in a more central part of the city. And so I was a newcomer, if you will. And at some point while we were playing soccer on the street, all of a sudden, all of these children just stopped playing. And they just basically found something interesting to watch. And I saw a young person with a Metallica t-shirt, long hair, having a fundamental different look. This young man basically just did not comply with the common sartorial practices of the neighborhood. Then we also had this garment up on the same street. And, you know, the workers were basically just having a tea break. And they were as amazed as we were. Then we just basically came back to our own game. And maybe 10 minutes later, again, my friends just stopped and I stopped and I was trying to figure out whom they were looking at. Now, this time there was another young man, but, you know, let's say uh, he just looked very different from the first one. He had this long rope and a tur- turban on his head and just long beard and a cane. He looked like he was an old man, but he wasn't. He was like your ideal typical Islamist, if you will. Now, when I looked at the same workers, they were as amazed as they were by the looks of the first person with the metallic t-shirt and long hair. The bottom line here is that basically in the 1980s, I said, these working class neighborhoods were not the quote unquote, the turf of the Islamists. 
they had to explain themselves to the workers. They had to just show them that they just would be their guardians. They just had to convince them. They say they would outperform whatever was left of the socialists you know, in their neighborhoods. In other words, it was not easy for the Islamists to just convince the working class, this new working class, the growing working class of these major cities. And this is exactly why they just needed a local ally in those working class communities. And these small industries were simply there and to just give a hand. Sharon, I just would like to emphasize a few additional points here. The first one is that these two partners, if you will, in other words, small industries and Islamists, this was not love uh, at the first sight, if you will. Small industrialists tried their chances in national politics with other actors, actually. For instance, surprisingly, with the Social Democrats in the 1980s, the Social Democratic Party of the 1980s, CHP, back then was known as the political party of the construction contractors and sweatshop owners. Furthermore, in the 1980s, specifically, Islamists still adopted their own older version of this economic narrative, which was very close to the older developmentalist ideology. This is my first point. In other words, you know, like the way they say these two partners got connected to each other happened gradually in those two decades between 1980 and 2000. And my second point is about the economic and political narrative of the Islamists. As they just began to connect with the small industries, slowly their rhetoric and political narrative changed substantially. And in this regard, I think Mr. Tayyip Erdogan played a visible role. His contribution to Islamism in Turkey, I say, was closely related to his own personal background. He was not a university professor like his predecessor, Mr. Nejmetin Erbakan, who just happened to be the unquestionable leader of the Islamist movement well until the late 1990s. It's not even clear if Mr. Erdogan has a college diploma, for instance. And the working class is, you know, like, uh, supporters of this movement, you know, like see this as a sign of success. He is a self-made man without proper education, made it to the top. He worked in different jobs under precarious conditions. To cut long story short, Mr. Erdogan observed with his own first-hand experience, how a new urban elite was emerging in working-class neighborhoods. In other words, he was aware that the world was changing, and he was a part of it. Very uh, shrewd politician and obviously astute observer of these developments. The economic crisis in 2001 devalued the Turkish currency drastically and boosted exports by small industrialists. Since at the time, AKP was advocating for Turkey's accession to the European Union, which would undoubtedly result in increasing environmental regulations and tougher enforcement of the labor code. Why is it that the uh, small industrialists wouldn't have concerns about AKP's program with respect to accession to the EU? The shorter answer is that AKP, the leading Islamist uh, group in Turkey, basically offer something that other political movements in Turkey could not have offered to the small industries. Let me just specify what I mean here by referring to individual, let's say, political dominant political currents in Turkey. Let's like you focus on the ultra-nationalists and the liberal and social democrats. I'm into two broad, you know, let's say, groups. 
the ultra nationalists who also entail people who have a very uh, strong secular states of worldview offered basically in the, uh, from the 1980s on a return to the older social economic model which would be based on this idea of national self-sufficiency and this kind of economy model of course would mean the end of the export-led growth policies this would be of course unacceptable for small industrialists other movements, basically broadly speaking, liberals and social democrats, would not take the interests and aspirations of the small industrialists into consideration. To them, they would be happy to see that the small industrialists would eventually just disappear, give their space to larger companies because they, in other words, liberals and social democrats, saw the mushrooming of the sweatshops as a sign of the quote-unquote middle-income trap. Part of their distanced position was, of course, because they mostly represented another middle class, whom we called here the petit bourgeoisie, who for the most part may make a living in larger economic and political organizations, such as they see bigger corporations, NGOs, and the government itself. In other words, they were not entrepreneurs like the small industries and they saw the world differently. And liberals and social democrats basically just represented their interests primarily. In short, the ultra nations or nationalists, liberals and social democrats would certainly enjoy the support of the small industrialists, but the relative significance of this kind of an alliance with small industrialists would be much smaller than what it would be for the Islamists, as they represented ultra nationalists, liberals and social democrats represented other constituencies primarily that had certain conflicting interests with the small industrialists. Islamists, on the other hand, did not really represent a key economic interest until the 1980s. They were technically this open to and also needed this kind of an alliance with small industries. Similarly, they were against this European Union membership idea well until the AKP or the JDP came to power. In short, small industries knew that Islamist relationship with Europe would be conditional like the ultranationalists, number one, while they would also keep the export networks alive, like the liberals and the social democrats. In this regard, Islamists were sort of the logical ally for the small industrialists, because they would or they promised to just establish a conditional relationship with the European Union, while they also promised to keep this export networks and the export-oriented growth strategy alive and well. Would you remind us what you meant by the so-called middle income trap? I mean, roughly speaking, if the personal income in a country is around $10,000 a year, and if you do not see a significant increase, growth, or drop in this income, average personal income, or an extended period of time, such as a decade or two decades, scholars, basically just designate those countries as in a condition called the middle-income trap. The AKP swept to power in the 2002 elections and continued the export-led strategy. You write that since this strategy was based on the suppression of wages in labor-intensive light manufacturing industries that you mentioned earlier, and the provision of limited social services for workers, the revaluation of the Turkish lira progressively undermined export growth. 
And China's World Trade Organization membership in 2001 was a game changer since it gradually ate up Turkey's wage competitiveness. We are talking about the export sector. How did the AKP government counter the impact of these changes on small enterprises? The 2000s was not only the first decade of the Islamist, two decades long Islamist government, but it was also a turning point in, let's say, global political economy. For the simple fact, which we already pointed out, that, let's say, China became a part of the capitalist world economy. So the Islamists, when they came to power, just found themselves in this very interesting context. The global forces that brought them to power just were getting somewhat weaker in this particular decade. But the same transformation uh, created new opportunities for the small industrialists. Basically, many, let's say, industrial sectors in Europe, they just use energy which we could call the energy-intensive sectors, began to simply just uh, move their operations to other countries. Again, about this did not take place in the form of this uh, foreign investment. They simply began to force us to sell their, let's say, expensive equipment to new companies, and let's say, in countries like Turkey. They began, again, to just outsource certain lines of producing. To cut long story short, even though the labor-intensive manufacturing activities, just uh, the growth of these industries, began to slow down in the early 2000s, the rise of the energy-intensive sectors, such as carpet production or metal processing, began to somewhat compensate for the gradual slowdown of the labor-intensive manufacturing industries, such as, again, garment, furniture, etc., so this second interesting and important development was the rise of the small industrializing towns in the rest of the country, not Istanbul, not Izmir, not Ankara, but in the distant corners of the country. Here, I need to just sort of underline one common misunderstanding. People tend to think that they say the small towns increased their industrial output after the 1980s at the same time as the big cities, such as again Istanbul, I don't think this was the case. Uh, most of the small towns basically grew fastest, you know, again, in the early 2000s. They were not your know, major, for instance, garment producers, again, the labor-intensive industries, but they were major, they said, producers of products that require lots of energy. So basically, Islamism as such, I mean, that was, quote-unquote, invented in this metropolitan area, such as Istanbul, began to be exported to these small towns. Accordingly, basically, we also began to see some sort of a substitute of some electoral support from small growing towns, and also, again, the export of the ideology from big cities to these growing, let's say, towns. And that's one of the reasons why the Islamists in their first decade could overcome this particular global political economic transformation without changing their major strategy, which is, again, to support small industries. And to be more specific, basically, what in the decade was to indirectly subsidize the labor-intensive sectors. How? First of all, again, they just basically let the informal employment practice continue. This was the most important support they gave, you know, like the small industries. We just hit this one-party government, very strong in terms of electoral support, 
I mean, the circumstances to just enforce the labor regulations according to the law were simply there. However, they did not do that. Also, they developed new programs, basically, again, as I said, to indirectly subsidize them. For instance, in 2006, the Islamists began to work on a universal healthcare basic program, which sounds pretty progressive. But when you look more closely into the intentions of Islamists, you could definitely see that what they wanted to do is to subsidize, again, the small industries for their informal employment practices. You just have a worker employed at your sweatshop. You do not have to just pay their severance fee, their basic social security payments, etc. You only pay that worker's wages, that's it. And then if uh, that worker needs to have some sort of medical support, then the government provides that, you know, like basic medical support for that worker. The Islamist government in the part of the decade helped this small industry to survive the immediate crisis that was generated by the entry of China into global capitalist world economy. Utku, the candidates of the Ruling and Justice Development Party, AKP, have been doing well in the districts that have a high number of manufacturing sweatshops. You argue that along with small construction contractors, slumlords, and shopkeepers in working class communities, small industrialists make up a new middle class. The alliance between the Islamists and the middle class is a key factor behind their decades-long electoral success. You add what makes the Islamist small industrialist partnership successful is its capacity to regiment social interactions among the members of working class communities. Can you elaborate how does this alliance manage to garner the workers' votes in these neighborhoods? A good number of high-quality research has been published within the last decade that inform us about the way the Justice and Development Party, the leading Islamist party in Turkey, reaches out to its constituency, to its electorate. However, this is only one part of the story. In fact, the same studies, such as Sevinç Duan's 2016 book, which was published in Turkish, on the neighborhood mobilization strategies of Islamists, show that workers and the urban poor are actively excluded from the party organization. Then the question is as much about the Islamist party's mobilization strategies as other factors in the neighborhood. In other words, workers' political identity is only partially framed as a result of their direct interactions with the Islamist party, as well as the religious organizations such as tariqas. As a matter of fact, when I lived and worked along with my friends in the largest working class urban region of Turkey, I did not see radical supporters in my setting, but those who just gave their consent to the Islamists for reasons that had barely anything to do with what the Islamists preached to them. They believed their lives would be much more difficult if others replaced the Islamists in their neighborhoods as the primary political actors. It's a decision based on vulnerability, if you will, rather than a result of a deep conviction in the Islamist values or, quote-unquote, the result of a rational negotiation with the Islamists. Let me specify which factors produce this state of vulnerability. Three mechanisms, which to some extent resembles to what Michel Foucault calls technologies of self, are at work here. The first one is based on the harsh labor conditions. Workers in sweatshops work typically for over 11 hours, up to 13 hours a day. 
the toil makes a significant physiological, emotional, and cognitive impact on how they contemplate their own life experiences. When they come home, they do not have much time to do anything but to have their dinner, maybe a short shower. They have no time to think about politics. This is important because the dominant political movement in their community then has a fundamental advantage in local politics. Workers do not have the resources to listen to or engage with the representatives of other political movements. Thus, the Islamists in these neighborhoods do not have to do much except for making themselves periodically visible to their potential voters in this neighborhood. The second technology, if you will, is related to the urban layout of the working class neighborhoods in major Turkish cities. Many of these neighborhoods began their lives as a collection of semi-legal or illegal squatter settlements. We know a lot about how these squatter settlements came into existence from the 1950s on. The key transformation took place in the 1980s when a number of quote-unquote amnesties for these shacks legalized the right of the squatters to their plots. Single-story simple shacks were gradually replaced with multi-story apartment buildings constructed around extremely narrow streets with virtually no green public spaces. The population density in Istanbul's working class communities is as high as in Hong Kong. I emphasize narrow streets because they are the setting of the second technology, which we could call the gaze, or if you follow Jean-Paul Sartre, the look. The streets host most of the small manufacturing facilities in Turkey. For instance, in my research setting, there were roughly 2.5 manufacturing sweatshops and two garment sweatshops per street. In addition to these Swiss shops, there are on average around 10 commercial establishments, such as grocery shops or coffee houses per street. Now, the significance of these figures is that there are always quote-unquote eyes on a typical pedestrian in a working-class community. Sweat shop owners, their foremen, shopkeepers, the coffee house communities are all men, and they are eager to check what's going on in their street. Primarily women and generally anyone who would not fit the code of the street, if you will, under a tremendous pressure of surveillance. My female co-workers, for instance, regularly quit their jobs to avoid the pressure of the male gaze to take a break at home or in their hometowns, where they, of course, would be exposed to the surveillance of their families. My young male co-workers strolled the streets at night in order to avoid the same male gaze. Despite all these coping mechanisms, though, the gaze establishes strong barriers to the urban poor and workers about whom they could interact with and how they could interact with them. Under these circumstances, it's very difficult for a small group of political activists with limited resources to break these barriers. It's also very difficult for the urban poor to establish alternative social interactions among each other, this approved by the urban elite or small industrialists. Now, let me move to the third technology. This more or less corresponds to a particular technology of science systems. Under the immense pressure at their workplaces, as well as in public and private spaces, workers and their families work to draw social boundaries to make sense of their own social work. The workplaces do not let them to think and act. The streets host various social tensions between men and women, young and old, Kurd and Turk, Alevi and Sunni, and members of different regional groups. The workers look for a quote-unquote master frame 
to convince themselves that there is a common ground with all these factors for social cohesion. Islamism as a narrative serves this function. It provides workers with certain signs that regulate their everyday life interactions, which in return brings some order to the chaos that characterizes the workers' neighborhood. Religious ceremonies, worshiping patterns, or sacral practices serve this purpose by setting certain boundaries within and beyond these communities. Certain members of these communities who defy the boundary-making process in the neighborhood are demonized. So is everyone practically outside these communities. The key motive of this technology of science systems is the notion of purity. As a result of their work experience, which do not give them any hope for upper social mobility, many of my coworkers lived with a very pessimistic perspective about their own future. This generated the ground for a certain type of asceticism. Thus, they were keen on drawing lines between activities that could corrupt their very own being and other relatively safe activities. Similarly, they were looking at a narrative that would make them believe that they were members of the same community with those whom they were in a very tense relationship, their employers, neighbors, or co-workers. Social boundaries set by the Islamist rhetoric thus serve to give them the principles which help the worker and their families to organize their relations with their community and to make sense of these relations. Shahram, let me make a final point here. The boundary making in these neighborhoods is the basis of the success of the alliance between the Islamists and the small industrialists. But the object of the social boundaries is not the people who do not live in these communities, or to be more specific, the secularists, who uh, for the most part live in richer parts of the city. Similar to the dislike of the Trump supporters in suburban and rural areas for the liberals in the United States. Workers in these communities of Turkish cities are told that the secularists are not their friends. The reason why the secularists are demonized is not only about cutting the communication channels between workers and well-to-do secularists. In fact, this is probably not even an important concern for the Islamists because those secularists do not have any strong intention to engage with these workers for political purposes anyway. The reason why the Islamists are so keen on drawing the social boundaries and the reason why the workers are willing to comply with this process is rather to use the secularists as an object of hatred and demonization in order to establish the social cohesion within the working class communities. Last workers believe that their community has a social cohesion despite all the tensions. They get ready to support the political actors who claim to play a critical role in the formation of that social cohesion. And in this particular case, that actor is the Islamists. So these three social mechanisms or social technologies together push the workers and their families in a particular direction whereby they just do not find any other options for them but to basically give their support to the Islamists. Utku Babalan is a visiting associate professor of sociology at Amherst College. He spoke with Shahram Aghamir. You can read his latest article titled Manufacturing the AKP in Turkey online at Middle East Research and Information Project at merip.org. 
From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Bomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at radio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.